following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Welcome back after our very fine Lord's Table service. We're glad that you're here. We're going to turn our Bibles to Ezekiel 12, please. Ezekiel and the 12th chapter. The Lord is uh, by, by far, far from done with Ezekiel and uh, his visions and also uh, some kind of pre-enactments, if you will, of the captivity and uh, the siege of Jerusalem, uh, many miles away from where Ezekiel was at the moment. And uh, here we come to the, the portrayal of Judah's captivity. And it says this in chapter 12, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity, and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight. It may be that they will consider though they are a rebellious house. By day you shall bring out your belongings in their sight, as though going into captivity, and at evening you shall go in their sight like those who go into captivity. Dig through the wall in their sight and carry your belongings out through it. In their sight you shall bear them on your shoulders and carry them out at twilight. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the ground, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel." So I did as I was commanded. I brought out my belongings by day as though going into captivity, and at evening I dug through the wall with my hand. I brought them out at twilight, and I bore them on my shoulder in their sight. Now you see what he's doing here. He's enacting or acting out what it would be like for people to be taken away. You know, they have their little sack on their back of all the rest of their belongings that they can bring with them. Everything else is left behind, and they're leaving for captivity. Verse 8, And in the morning the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince of Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are among them. Say, I am assigned to you, as I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight and go out. They shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. He shall cover his face so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. You know what that means? Does it seem like a contradiction? That he will go to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, but he will not see it? What's the answer to that? The king of Babylon had his eyes put out at Riblah before he arrived at Babylon. So he thus did go to Babylon, and he did not see it. Verse 14, I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him and all his troops, and I will draw out the sword after them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Verse 16, but I will spare a few of their men from the sword, from famine and from pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the Gentiles wherever they go. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink your water with trembling and anxiety. And say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the land of Israel, They shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water with dread, so that her land may be emptied of all who are in it because of the violence of all those who dwell in it. Then the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste, and the land shall become desolate, and you shall know that I am the Lord." And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, what is this proverb that your people have about the land of Israel, which says, The days are prolonged and every vision fails? 
Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. For no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord. I speak, and the words, I'm sorry, and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word and perform it says the Lord God. See, they were too accustomed to all the false prophets. Their words didn't come to pass. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 27, Son of man, look, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be postponed anymore, but the word which I speak will be done, says the Lord God. Thus, the reading of God's word Ezekiel in the 12th chapter. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel in the 12th chapter. The last two weeks, I have given a little preview of the next message in the little series that I'm doing here about the grace of God. And we keyed off of the section at the end of Titus that talks about the grace of God, which teaches us to live godly lives. Uh, the grace of God that appeared, the grace of God that saves, that sacrifices. And I wanted to look a little bit more at that topic with you these days, I think, helpful for us. If you're uh, a regular old human being, which you all do seem to be, uh, of whatever stature you are in the society, whatever your economic situation is, doesn't matter. If you're a regular old person, you have a battle with sin. I guarantee it, and uh, you might feel that battle more or less keenly. I hope you do feel it keenly, and perhaps after this morning, yet a little bit more than you have in the past. But because that's the case, I know that this material will be useful to you. Uh, I've walked with the Lord now for 36 years, believe that or not, but... um, it's just as useful for me to study and review this material as it was to learn it the very first time. And so I trust that it will be that way for you as well. After our last two messages on the blessedness of the Christian life and how God magnanimously expresses his grace and mercy toward us, people might wonder about the implications of it. Can I just sin without worrying about the consequences? And some use this idea of of that criticism as an attack on our belief system. So we believe that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And it has the implications that we lay out in the scriptures, that yes, our sins are forgiven in Christ. Forgiven past, present, and future, judicially, before the Lord, as we come to Christ. And then as we walk along, and, and we're in God's family, our sins are forgiven as we confess them to him and are no longer an issue of eternal condemnation, but are an issue perhaps uh, certainly a family fellowship of harmony, if you will, in our relationship to God. And some would say, well, then that just means you can be uh, you know, as bad as you want to be and uh, God will forgive you. And you know, that's just a very, to them, a vile kind of idea that, that Christianity doesn't necess- necessitate a change in your life or something like that. And, and the Apostle Paul deals with that in a passage we'll come to about halfway through the message. But some use this to criticize our, our belief. You know, they say there has to be more to it than that. Otherwise, people will just keep on sinning. And then others use this idea of the grace of God as an excuse for their sin. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say these words, God will forgive me, as as they contemplate doing some sin in the near future. God will forgive me, they say. Maybe they're doing some sin or they're contemplating it. Humans are master excuse makers. By the way, if you're a regular human being, you're a master excuse maker. You know, you don't have to be, you know, what's a high IQ? 
200 or something. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be a 145 IQ or anything. You can make excuses for your sin. And imagine, you know, we imagine almost anything to justify our sin, even presuming upon God's grace to allow us to get away with sin. Romans 6 asks the same question, if God's grace is so rich, why not sin more that God can show more grace? We'll come there in just a moment. That seems kind of logical in a sense, but is not theological. You know, know, why not? I mean, if we can do more of what our flesh wants to do and God can do more of what he does displaying his grace, why not? We ended in our last message last time by tackling this idea for a moment. And we said the short answer is no, that's not how God's grace works because it's it's a ridiculous mischaracterization of that grace. His grace is so rich that, as Titus says, it trains us in the first place to not sin to begin with. It can make us pure and make us see the abundant riches of a holy life. And that is what God's intention is. And that brings us back, you know, where we were in Titus, which taught us that the grace of God that brings salvation has taught us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. It doesn't teach us to treat them lightly. It doesn't teach us to to excuse them, these sins that we think about doing, these temptations, these worldly lusts, but to live soberly and godly in this evil age. I have you turn to 2 Samuel 12 because I want from there to give you on the kind of negative side of this picture seven reasons not to presume upon God's grace. That's what it is when you say, well, God will forgive me, but I'm going to go ahead and live that way anyway. That is a presumptuous kind of sin. It's a very dangerous kind of place to be mentally. Um, It's a place that brings into question what your real understanding is of the grace of God. But in this passage, there are seven, at least seven reasons not to sin by presuming on God's grace. The scenario is something like this. People say, and I've heard this too, well, David sinned, and you know how he sinned, how bad it was, we say, and God forgave him. Therefore, if I sin... The reasoning goes, the unscriptural reasoning goes, after if I sin, and you know, God will go ahead and give me the benefits of forgiveness. But what's wrong with this idea? First of all, reason number one not to do this, it's not a repentant attitude about sin. Imagine your guilt after you sin and how you don't want to do that again. If you're a true Christian, you have the Spirit of God, you have the conscience that has been activated informed by the Word of God, um, and you're saying to yourself, why did I do that? Why did I sin? Imagine that guilt. You've had that feeling, I hope. I hope. So the same attitude should prevail in your heart before you carry out some contemplated activity that is sin. Believers are... And this is not a word that your spell checker has in it. I know because mine didn't. Believers are repenters. Believers are repenters, both after sin and before. When the the idea comes to the mind, James chapter 1 says that when lust is conceived, you know, each one is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when you sense that enticement coming, You've got to cut it. Some pastor said, from that moment, you have about five seconds, five seconds to get yourself straightened out and say, I'm repenting of that bad desire, that bad thought, that temptation, that that attitude, that angry word, that look, that whatever it is, I'm repenting. I'm turning away from that. Because if you go to the next step, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. The fruit of sin is just death. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like that fruit. It's a very bitter fruit. You don't like to eat that fruit. And so we want to stay as far away from that as we possibly can. So the first problem with this idea of 
I'll just go ahead and sin and God will forgive me, is that you're not showing a repentant attitude. And what a Christian has is a repentant attitude about sin. Secondly, the idea that God will forgive me, so on, you know, in quotes, shows that you're not content with the lot that God has given to you. Look at 2 Samuel 12 and verse number 8. Now, uh, the chapter begins with the prophet Nathan giving this parable to David about a poor man who had a sheep. And uh, the, the rich man came and stole that sheep from him. And it was a real travesty, a real violation of justice. And David was very angry at, at this man. And, and the sheep was the picture of Bathsheba. And the poor man was Uriah. And the rich man, King David, came and stole his little sheep, his little wife, from him. And then, and then on top of that, got the guy killed. The whole situation you've read about in the, in the scriptures and David, or Nathan said to David, verse 7, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave to you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more, God says through Nathan to David. You, if you say, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do this and God's going to forgive me, I'm going to do it because, look, that's what David did. He got away with it, so to speak. He got forgiven. Not only is that not a repentant attitude, it shows you're not content with the lot that God has given to you. God has given to you what he has given to you. He has given to you what he thinks is, ne- is necessary for you. You don't need, at this moment, a higher-paying job the lottery. You don't need a different spouse. God has given you what he has given to you. And you need to be about that and thankful about that. And God is rebuking David saying, look, I gave you everything. You're the king. You have access to everything a man could ever want. And yet you go ahead and do this. You're not content with what God has given to you. That's a sin. Thirdly, by this attitude of, I'll just go ahead and sin and God will forgive me. You despise the commandments of the Lord. Look at verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Instead, of despising the commandments of the Lord, you should revere them. You should revere them. You know, you, somebody says, I am, you know, God's going to forgive me, but I'm going to divorce my spouse. What about the command to love your wife? You care as much about that as you care about this kind of, you know, twisted interpretation of God will forgive me from the passage of Scripture? Uh, what about wives? You know, have you worked as hard at thinking about what you're going to do next when you get rid of your husband as, as maybe you think about submitting and respecting to your husband and loving your husband and children? Those are the teachings of Scripture. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, love your husbands, love your children, respect them, be submissive. You're spending more time contemplating how to be forgiven for the sin that you're contemplating, which God hates, more time thinking about that than how to love and respect and live together as God commands. Don't despise the commandments of the Lord, my friends. Don't despise them. Don't be discontent. Don't be unrepentant. And number four, this is very serious. You, you don't want to take this attitude because... You could get somebody killed. Let's just be blunt. You could get somebody killed. An innocent person might die. God will forgive me doesn't bring that person back. You say, how is that? That doesn't happen. It does happen. It happens all the time. You hear about it on the news all the time. Um, a child died because of what David did, 2 Samuel 12, 14. 
However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. I don't understand why God permitted this particular outcome for the the baby, but I trust God's wisdom and righteousness in the matter. I just have to cast myself on that, my friends. Don't, Don't criticize God for what you don't fully understand. I have no idea about this situation. I mean, you know, maybe that child was going to be born deformed. Maybe something else. I have no idea. I'm just you know, speculating. But God said that was going to occur, and the judge of all the earth always does right. You have to count on that foundational truth when you look at a, t- a difficulty like this. But not only did a child die, Uriah died as well. I should have had there in the parentheses Second uh, Samuel 12, and we just read it. Uh, it was in verse number 9. You know who should have died? David. The law, the, the law of Moses specified for an adulterer and a murderer the death penalty. Either one of those sins, adultery, death penalty, murder, death penalty, that's it. You... You, David, should have died. But God did not allow him to die. Look at verse uh, 13. It says, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. What a mercy. What a mercy. But you, by that attitude of, I'll just go ahead and sin, you could get somebody killed, and you don't want to do that. If you commit adultery, for example, a jealous and defrauded husband sometimes goes too far. You cannot satisfy his anger at what has happened to him. Other times, a love triangle goes sideways. David killed a man to cover up the sin that he had done. Number five, why don't you want to live like this? The consequences of sin last longer and run deeper than you can presently imagine. David had no end of trouble in his home. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son, openly. The prediction is there. We just read it. Uh, now, this doesn't mean the situation is totally hopeless. Once you wake up to the reality that you've sinned, you need to repent. David did that. But realize that he had strife in his home after this. He had rebellion in the kingdom. He had an adult son who ultimately died. And you can read from chapter 12 through chapter, say, 24, maybe you know, a little less than that. But you get the idea of what happened there. You have the whole situation with Absalom and all the mess that and that was entailed in his family. He had, he had been a godly man, and he was a man truly indeed after God's own heart, after he got straightened out, but he had lots of problems in his home. So if you are awake to the reality of sin in the first place, though, and you knowingly dive in head first, It's somewhat doubtful to me whether you really understand the grace of God or have experienced it. Do you understand what I mean? I'm not saying you've lost your salvation. I'm just wondering if you're saying, yeah, I'm going to jump in with both feet here and do this. Are you really with the Lord? Were you ever really with him to begin with, or was it just an empty profession of faith? Maybe you have experienced the grace of God. Your flesh is just overactive, but maybe you have not. My job is not here to coddle you to think that you're fine. God perished the thought that I would come along and say, they're there now, it's okay. 
No, I might have to say, no, not there, there now, it's okay. It's not okay. If you're sinning, if you're jumping in with both feet and saying, oh, God will forgive me, it may not be very okay with you. It may be very bad. So my job is to challenge you to make sure that you're in the faith. If I do that, then I feel like I've done my, my job. Uh, what are we on here? Number, rule, uh, number six, reason why not to behave this way. You treat God with contempt and outsiders take notice. Do you think that's becoming of Christians, people on the outside to look and say, look, these people sin with impunity. They just, they, they don't feel that there's consequences. They just, God will forgive them. Second Samuel twelve fourteen has this idea. You've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. I'm aware there's a translational difference there with the Hebrew text. You can look at the note there I have about that. But basically, whichever direction you go on that, the meaning is covered. Um, you know, Romans 2.24, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of the misconduct of the Jewish people. And that happens with Christians as well. The whole matter of David has given a people, people a built-in excuse to dishonor God. Well, David did it. Look at all those evil people in the Bible. And that's terrible. And then finally, number seven, don't do this because you will hurt other people. You will hurt other people. David certainly hurt other people because of what he did. Now Bathsheba was complicit in some level, but she was damaged too. Her offspring died. Her husband died. She had to bear emotional scars for the rest of her life. Look at what she did. David's other wives, should have been only one other wife, but the fact is there were other wives, plural. They were cheated on as well. The people of the nation to whom David owed loyalty and fidelity were discouraged by his actions, and people forever after, for centuries, have been depressed by what he did and some emboldened in their sin by what he did. The consequences run deeper and last longer than you can imagine sometimes. Now, we do recall, quickly, Psalm 32 and 51. So go back in your mind to last week and two weeks ago. We spent entire messages dealing with when, when you wake up to the reality of your sin, finally, and you realize, I've fallen into sin. Maybe you didn't even do so with a high-handed, presumptuous intent to sin. That's possible. But when you wake up, and you realize, I have sinned against thee and thee only. I was born in iniquity, Psalm 51. Cleanse me with hyssop. Wash me and I will be clean. Cleanse me, I will be whiter than snow. You want to be cleansed by God. That provision is there. I preached two entire sermons on it. When you turn your back on God, God will be gracious to you if you turn back to him. But that doesn't change the fact that we're often ungracious and have bad attitudes and desire things that are wrong and do things that are an affront to God's holiness. So we turn to another passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 6 now, if you turn there, and we address the matter theologically that we've been looking at. How is it that we don't go ahead and sin so that grace will abound? There's more to this equation than just looking at the cost and the consequences, which is what we've done so far in the first 15 or 20 minutes of this message, we've basically said, look, look at David's example. You want to use David's example and say God forgave him so he'll forgive me? Well, go ahead and look at that example, but do so very carefully and look at the consequences and the costs of that. But don't only look to the consequences and costs because that's not going to solve the problem entirely. It's not like if you have a sin problem, if I just lay out to you, look, Cost number one, cost number two, cost number three. And you're like, yeah, but the pros, you know, seem very nice. And you're going to be weighing those things and your flesh is going to want to go to the, to the pleasures of sin side of the ledger instead of the costs of sin kind of led on the side of the ledger. And, and you're going to end up falling back into that sin and fe- failing in that temptation and so on. You don't just look to the costs. That's not enough. 
what you have to do is you have to look to the grace of God. You have to look where Romans 6 goes with the Apostle Paul teaching on the doctrine of salvation. Now, he, he's begun in the book of Romans to do a couple of things. He's talked about the utter depravity of humankind. Every human being is a sinner. He says that very clearly. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, whether you're black or white, rich or poor, green or yellow or red or anything. It doesn't matter. You are a sinner. All equally. And because of that, we are condemned in our sin. Guilty before God. And so he says, how do we solve this problem? End of Romans 3, Romans 4, and Romans 5. We can be justified by grace through faith. If we trust in Christ, God set him forth as a propitiation for our sins. He worked satisfaction for the wrath of God against sin in Christ. And thus, we can, if we believe in him, he promises. He's laid this out as, a, if you will, the condition of salvation. Believe, trust in Christ. Turn from sin and turn to Christ. Then you will be washed, cleansed and you will be redeemed, you will be justified. That's up to Romans chapter 5. And then the question comes, okay, if that's how God's grace works, why don't we just keep on sinning then? And he's going to answer the question head on. Verse 1, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That all this provision of Christ and all this justification can just flow and we don't have to worry about sin? And he answers his own question, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And so now he's going to give us, what, seven or eight uh, explanations or reasons why God's grace is the power to overcome sin. Not just looking at the consequences. That's an important exercise, and it's necessary. But there's something more to the gospel than that. The Christian, first of all, has died to sin. Do you you realize that, that you have died to sin? The attraction of the things of this world has become dead to the believer. And we are dead to it. Paul says in Galatians 6, I've been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me in the crucifixion of Christ that we picture with the cross on the wall behind me. We have been made dead to sin. When we are in our right mind so to speak, and I'm talking about the Romans 7 kind of struggle, the I that doesn't want to sin and the I that does have the struggle against sin. When we're in our right mind, so to speak, we recognize that the allures here are not really allures anymore. God's grace killed our sin life. Thus, we cannot continue in sin to make grace abound. Grace has abounded in a different way than this way. See, when somebody asks this question, can we sin that grace may abound, they're missing the point that grace has abounded to prevent sin in the first place, not to just clean up the mess afterwards. It does clean up the mess afterwards, but it helps us to prevent and live, to live in a godly way beforehand. Some illustrations of this idea that we've died to sin, because you might think that's kind of abstract. What does that mean? Well, we've moved to a new address, and the landlord at the old address doesn't get our rent anymore, okay? New master. We become citizens of a new country. We're not living like the way we did in our old country. We were married to sin, but now we have died, and our marriage to sin is over. You know, you're divorced from it now, so you don't go back to that old spouse, of sin. We had one master, but now we've changed and gotten another one, so we don't owe obedience to the first one. Okay, so the the housing illustration, the citizenship illustration, the marriage illustration, the the slavery illustration or master illustration, all those are picturing this idea that we've died to sin. We've become disconnected from it in Christ. Instead, we've become, secondly, united to Christ. Look at... uh, Chapter 6 of Romans, verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
even so we should also walk in newness of life. Now this, Paul is writing with kind of thick metaphor here. And what he's doing when he talks about baptism is not water baptism, but spirit baptism. And he's saying in that baptism, the idea of baptism is that we are identified with and brought into connection, into solidarity with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Christians are dead. Christians were dead in sin. And now we are dead to sin. We have to regard ourselves this way. We are alive to God, not dead in sin. Therefore, we have a new life. And this new life was provided by grace. Therefore, we cannot continue to sin that grace may abound. We've been united to Christ now. Thirdly, why do we live? How can we live in God's grace and avoid sin? How can we have victory over sin? Well, look at verses 5 and the first part of 6. The Christian's old person has died, is what Paul says here. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Christian doctrine teaches, whether you feel it or not, Christian doctrine teaches that I used to be an old man, and now I am a new man in Christ. By old man, I don't mean a person who is of old age. What is meant in the Bible by a person who is old, an old man, is somebody qualitatively old, our old selves before becoming Christians. In that existence as an old man, if you're not a, a, a true Christian, you are in this existence now. You are in the realm of Adam. You are under the reign of sin. And you have the penalty of death staring you right in the eyeballs. You're in the realm of death, in effect. In the realm of Adam, subject to sin. In Christ, when you come to faith in him, that person with all those connections to Adam and sin and death, that person has been killed. That person is done away with. You are no longer that person if you're in Christ. Totally different now. Um, I think it's not only correct what I'm saying here, otherwise I wouldn't be saying it, but it's also helpful for us to think of our old person in, in this completed, finished, dead way. You know, don't think my old self is dying slowly and I have to die every day and I have to crucify it all over again all the time. No, rather think this way, according to this passage, my old self is dead. I am not that person anymore. Uh, it is gone and crucified with Christ. Now, granted, I have some remnants of the sin nature. Hanging on for dear life, as it were, clawing, trying to hang on. But my old self is gone, done, finished. I'm a new creature. The old has gone and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'm a new creature, a new creation in Christ. Okay, so there is a decisive thing that happens. You want to call it? a part of regeneration or definite sanctification or something, whatever, but it happens at the moment that you are born again. You are new. Something happens, whatever day that was, whatever moment that was, God changed you. And basically, you could also think about it like that, kind of that housing illustration. He took you from Adam, sin, and death, and he moved you lock, stock, and barrel to Christ, righteousness, and life. New realm. It's, you see, it's kind of like realm language. You dwelt in this realm before. You died to that, and now you're dwelling in this realm now. Okay? Therefore, number four on my list, sin's dominion is broken. The end of verse six, it says, the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, Verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. What glorious freedom. 
this is. His grace abounds to free us from sin. Listen to that. His grace abounds in order to free us from sin, not just forgive us for more sin, to free us from sin. And then fifthly, let's look at verses um, 8 to 11. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Okay, are we clear with that? Christ died, he rose again, he's never going to die again. Okay, death no longer has dominion. He has the, actually, he has the keys of death and Hades. He is in charge. He is the authority over those things. He is the author of life. He holds the keys of Hades and of death. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number five, how is God's grace the power to overcome sin? Well, it works this way. It causes you to consider yourself dead to sin. Now, we've, I've said this in different ways already in this section of our notes, but what I'm trying to get you to, to be reminded of is that the way that you think about things affects how you live for God. You know, if you think sin is my master and I'm just a victim and I can't control it, and the temptations are too great, and I just, I just have to give in. I don't have any choice besides my flesh wants to. You're going to be defeated all the time. But that's not what Christianity really is. That's not at all what it is. It doesn't look like that at all. I touched on this above about how we think about our old selves, but here we think about our relationship to sin, and Paul tells us to reckon ourselves dead to it. We truly are disconnected from sin and from its dominion, from its mastery, from its power. We do not think, therefore, it is. We think it because it is. We think it because it is already true. We don't make it to be true. You see, some, some preaching is like in certain, a certain kind of... Cl- idea of sanctification, that you've got to think this. If you just think this, it will kind of become true almost. Not at all. You think this way because it is true. If you have believed in Christ, you have been disconnected from sin. I don't feel that way though, Pastor. Look, I don't care how you feel. Get with the truth. The truth is the truth. If you are in Christ, you have died to sin. And he says, therefore, think that way. Think that way. Think the truth. You're never going to have any success against sin if you're thinking falsely. You think correctly. When sin comes knocking, you say, I'm not answering that. When sin comes ringing on the phone, let it go to voicemail and then delete it. You don't have to answer. You can sit there and just say, I'm disconnected from that. That's not me anymore. That was me, but that's not me. I'm a new person now. I'm reckoning myself to be dead to sin, disconnected from its mastery and power. We think it again because it is true. We reckon it because it is the right thing to reckon, and right thinking helps us overcome temptations. To overcome those temptations so we don't go backwards. When you face a temptation, remember this. You're dead to it. You and your Christian self are not responsive to that allurement. You're free from it. You belong to another. You've been unplugged from the sin life and plugged into the divine life. Okay, so don't, you know, we we too often we short-circuit that thing. We're plugged into the divine life and we want to have a little pigtail plug that we also plug into the sin life. Man, when you plug in two different circuits, you've got a problem. You know, it does, does jolt you. Don't do this at home, okay? Electrical engineers know this. Um, don't do that. You're dead to sin. Reckon yourself that way. Number six, I think, we're on here. 
this, the Christian engages in a never-ending battle against sin. This is how you, you take up this battle. Look at 612. You're, you're, you're recognizing I am dead to sin. 612, if you're a Christian now. Therefore, verse 12 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The Christian must be engaged in a never-ending battle with sin. You say, when's it going to get better? Never until you go to heaven, okay? Just, Just chalk it up. Write it down in your book. It's a truth. It's an axiom. It's a law of nature. It's just going to be there forever, okay? Nobody reaches sinless perfection despite all the false teaching out there that even touches on that idea. But you're, yeah, you're enrolled, brother. You've been, you, you're in the army now. And you can't just, you know, say, well, I'd like to get early discharge, you know. No, you can't go AWOL in that army of God. You are engaged in a never-ending battle against sin. We're not told to take a passive approach to sin. This is another area of sanctification where some people teach you. You just kind of have to let go and let, and let God handle everything. That's not correct. You, yeah, you know God's in charge and God's working in you, but he's working in you so that you work out your salvation. Okay? And he's telling us to take an active part in our sanctification. We can't just let our new selves flow Rather, we're commanded to not let sin reign in us. What does that mean? That means we tell it no. If you want to be a rebel, don't be a rebel against God. Be a rebel against sin and say, no, I am not going to do it. Why is it that we want to rebel against everything that's right and not rebel against everything that's wrong? Hmm. We have the power by the grace of God, to not allow sin to reign. But we get lazy. We want our flesh to be indulged, to rule us for a time. The Bible says in Colossians 3.5, it doesn't say it this way, but I, I wish some translation would, would say this, kill sin. It says it in a much more nice-sounding way. Mortify the deeds of the body. Now, it means kill sin. It means quit it. It means cut it out. It means stop it. It's an active fight, one that is only one with great effort. Spirit-led, Bible-informed effort, yes. It's not just, you know, I just pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to be a tough old soldier on my own. It's not that. But it is an effort. It is a fight. Effort nonetheless. God's grace enables us to do that so that sin should not abound. Letter G here, the body of the Christian is used as an instrument for good, 613. Do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but as instruments uh, to God, being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to him. So think of yourself as offering your body as a tool for God to use. Don't be a tool for sin. Be a tool for righteousness, okay? Be a tool for righteousness. God has um, ordained good works for you to do, hasn't he? So be about them. Be about them. And, and one of the good things is when you're about good works, it's really tough to be about bad works, isn't it? So replace the bad with the good. Say to yourself, what am I going to do for God? Uh, notice also two other points here as we close. The Christian is guided by the rule of grace. You're not under Uh, The dominion of sin, you're not under law, but you're under grace now. So your your operative principle is not, you know, do this, don't do that, letter of the law, and all that sort of thing. The operative principle is the riches of God's grace, which has been poured out upon you, poured into your heart by the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ, is teaching us to deny that ungodliness and worldly lust. And ironically, it's a very strange kind of irony That law which people strove and still today strive to keep, but is impossible because the law has no power in it to keep it, the only way that you can actually succeed in keeping that law is to find out, oh, I'm not under that law anymore. I'm under the grace of God, and that grace enables me to live a life which fulfills 
the moral requirements of the law of God in Christ. It's an interesting turn of events. And we become servants of righteousness instead of servants of sin. So you have to ask yourself, am I going to serve that temptation? Am I going to serve that master now more? Am I going to serve my flesh? Or am I going to serve God and serve righteousness? This leads Paul to write the well-known verse at the end of chapter 6. It says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we've been talking about, right? The fruit of it, the fruit of sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not continue in sin that grace may abound. Because grace abounds by removing us from the realm of sin and death. Grace puts us in an entirely new sphere so that we can serve God. You may feel, however, sometimes that sin abounds. But just remember, grace abounds much more. We can see Romans chapter 5, 20 and 21, just a few verses before where we were reading. Grace abounds much more. Remember that. And that empowers you to live a godly life for Christ. If any of you are struggling with some sin, don't hesitate to seek help from a brother, from myself, one of our deacons. Um, We need to do what we can to activate, to energize God's grace in our lives and to walk with Him. But don't, don't don't just sit there and keep struggling. Remember these truths. Remember why you don't sin presumptuously. And remember how you can live righteously. 2 Samuel 12, Romans 6. Let us pray. Father, thank you for abounding grace. Thank you, Lord, for the provision you've made in Christ and for the call that you lay out for us as Christians that we must live as servants of righteousness. May your hand guide us, each one of us, struggle or should be struggling with sin in our lives. Some attitude, some lustful temptation, some greed, covetousness, some idolatry that's in our heart. Whatever it might be, Lord, we all have something or some things we're working on. And I pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Perhaps today the first time we've really known that to be baptized into Christ Jesus, to be baptized into his death and to be disconnected from sin. Thank you for pulling the plug and plugging us into something else. Help us to live that way in the power of the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen.